Our scripture tonight is 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 10. 1 John chapter 2, verses 2, 28 to 3, 10. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. He is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, they say that practice makes perfect, but when it comes to practicing righteousness, to some degree, we are all still a mess. And while John has made clear from the first ten verses of chapter one that only liars claim to have completely overcome all sin in this life, with the polarized way that John contrasts light and darkness and the children of God and the children of the devil— and truth and lies and apostolic teaching with antichrist teaching, it's possible to imagine that in rough patches of your life, you might see yourself on the dark side of John's categories rather than the light and get discouraged. And you may ask, can I still have confidence that I am Christ's and he is mine when I look at my walk and the color scheme is grayscale? Our slow progress in righteousness can prompt us to wonder, am I ever going to find myself somewhere over the rainbow where bluebirds fly and the monochrome gray clouds are far behind me? Well, tonight is about John shooting straight with us. Walking the Christian walk is less tidy than talking the Christian talk. But you can still have confidence even in your imperfection. 
that you are a child of God and not of the world. In the first verse of our text, then, we see John is still focused on bolstering and abiding confidence that we are united to Christ. But he wants us to consider what it will take to have confidence in a new context. That is, what happens when we're standing face-to-face, not with the antichrists of the previous section, but instead standing face-to-face with Christ at his return on the final day of the Lord. He says in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, with John's context shift and the image of shrieking from Jesus in shame, we may be feeling like those disciples who feared perishing in the windstorm while Jesus was asleep on the stern of the boat, and then, when the incarnate Lord of heaven and earth awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and it obeyed him, the disciples quickly became aware that facing the Lord of heaven and earth was the weightier trial. Or we may feel like Peter when he began to understand who he was really fishing with when the supernatural net full of, with that supernatural net full of fish, and he shrank back in shame. And he begged Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But in verse 29, as John finishes bridging the last section with this one, we find out that the apostle of love has no desire to stir the spot of shame, the, the pot of shame, and leave us in it. In fact, he wants to give the saints more tools by which we may nullify insecurity. Before, when God's people were confronted with the false teachers, he held out a well-forged sword to parry their attacks on orthodoxy and said, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this. Take this good confession, wield it, and hang on to it. And now, to bolster our courage upon the return of the king, he gives us a different kind of tools, not weapons, for we have no need to fight against Christ. Instead, he gives us a fresh identity and a reasonable task to go about as we wait. He writes, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So the reasonable task is to practice righteousness. You don't have to be perfect in it in this life, but you do have to get to work at it. And inseparably connected with this task is your fresh identity. Reading between the lines, there are a couple of self-evident truths here. One, God's own true character is reflected in the task that he's given us. And two, children have a similar nature as their parents. Your identity as a child of God, then, makes your task a natural outworking of the new creation Uh, the new creation nature as a child of God. Therefore, know who God is, know who you are, and act appropriately. Now, as we move on from John's little two-verse transition and introduction in chapter 3, we find that John was just getting warmed up. In verse 3-1, we find that the apostle of love doesn't disappoint in living up to his nickname. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. You don't need to shrink from God at Christ's return. By the Spirit, because of the work of the Son, the Father is your Father. This will be a family reunion, but like a functional family reunion, not with crazy cousins or toxic tias. There is a dysfunctional relationship here between the world and you, but that's because the world has a toxic, dysfunctional relationship with God. The ones who have the problem are the ones who can't understand what you are all about in this life because they can't understand what Jesus is all about. This world is so utterly confused by your confession and what you think constitutes practicing righteousness that it makes their gears smoke when you get into a conversation with them or when you're around the water cooler at work on a lunch break or a backyard barbecue. When they talk about the most basic spiritual truths with you, they tilt their heads and they, they squint in confustication and they try to work out and understand why, like the rest of the world, you don't pendulum swing between apathy towards sin and then righteous indignation and, and injustice. When they are filled with righteous indignation, you balance the conversation with talk of mercy and imputed righteousness. And when they cherry-pick the Bible and simplistically paint God as only loving and forgiving and whose followers' only creed is don't judge, you balance the conversation and by bringing up the injustices that they were so infatuated and flummoxed with just five minutes ago. And they look at you like you're speaking a foreign language. And so half the time, the world mocks you as too weak and too forgiving. And the other half of the time, they're accusing you of being too judgmental. And therefore, you therefore make absolutely no sense at all talking about a loving and just Savior and a cross to boot. Plus, what you think constitutes practicing righteousness and what you believe is important about your identity is incompatible with the spirit of this age. In the era of yelling at your TV and arguing over every uh, world crisis on social media and protesting every perceived injustice, your lack of desire to riot or participate in vigilantism is concerning. But you know that in reality, neither those who are up in arms about everything nor those who cry peace and love and don't want to judge anything as sin, except judging sin as sin, Neither of those pendulum swings the world rides back and forth and back and forth on take the biggest problem in the world seriously enough. The biggest problem each of us will face is whether we will shrink in fear when the window of grace of this age ends and the king of heaven and earth returns and our Lord's day of justice arrives. You, who have come to believe that your biggest problem and that you are your own biggest problem, and that Christ is your only comfort in this life and the next, you are confusing to the world because you identify as a child of God instead of a child of the world. That is, instead of a child of human progress unencumbered by God's purposes and commands. Verse three, uh, Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him as he is. Having made the point that we are more in kind like our Father God than the world, so much so that the world shares similar frustrations and confusion about us as it does with God, John now takes this idea of our identity being odd and and tweaks this contemplation in perhaps an unexpected way. And he uses it to move back toward his main point about how we can have confidence before the judge of the world. Basically, the world doesn't really know what you are, and frankly, you don't even know what you're going to be. You are indeed children of God now, but, well, you don't even know exactly what you're going to be except that you're reve- except that when you're revealed as all that you're going to be made into, and you see him as he is, you are going to be surprisingly similar. So this reinforces John's point that perfection isn't expected of you right now, that that's something to be revealed later. Now, this is not to say that God has compromised his holy law or that he condones our sin. He doesn't condone it. His wrath poured out on the Son at the cross was the Father not condoning sin. So setting our sights on practicing righteousness rather than perfecting it is is not us or God condoning sin, but rather it's an acknowledgement that the righteousness we are working at is not a justifying righteousness. Christ has already earned and gifted us that righteousness, and we wear it like a caterpillar wears a chrysalis. Underneath the safety of that righteousness, we are under construction and will one day be revealed as something new and beautiful. But now, while a caterpillar chrysalis butterfly analogy is beautiful, it's not precisely how the Bible talks about this transformation. Verse 3-3 gets more at the way the Bible tends to talk about our sanctification. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, excuse me, as he is pure. So sanctification is more like being in a forge where the old man is being burned away. See, sometimes as reform folks, we err in an overly self-deprecating and defeatist way and treat ourselves like there is absolutely nothing good inside of us. But that is incoherent alongside the idea of purifying yourself, because it begs the question, purifying what? In a forge, you must start with a precious metal in order to purify it. A forge is not an alchemy device. It doesn't produce gold. It purifies gold by burning away its impurities. The cage stagers among us can be particularly susceptible to this area of unhealthy, extreme self-deprecation. When they throw around that deeply humbling term, total depravity, they can sometimes give the impression that there's nothing in us to purify. For this reason, many solid theologians don't love using that term and opt for some other phrase besides total depravity. What the term really means is that before being born again, you are totally devoid of any means of saving yourself from the day of the Lord. Before the Spirit caused us to see and believe and trust and abide in the love which the Father has given to us by sending his Son, we had neither the desire nor the means to save ourselves. Indeed, as Jesus says in John 3, unless one is born from above, they cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it. And 
even after being born again. Our new heavenly nature is still embedded in our old corrupt one. And our old nature will agitate us until we are fully purified. So the good thing about coming to grips with our depravity is that it clarifies that all glory goes to God and my salvation. But the bad thing about that unfortunate term, total depravity, is that it makes it sound like there's nothing good even inside the children of God. But there is. And when you pass from this life to the next, either through death or by the sound of the trumpet, there is already something in you now which will survive that final purification. Since we long for that day now, though, we begin now to purify ourselves. In verse 4, we learn more about what this purification is like by considering its reverse. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. While the cat's away, the mouse will play. While the parents are away, couch forts will take over the living room and video game time may get stretched out beyond its limit. And while the king is away, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The world, in its depravity, practices lawlessness, thinking they have no king. Now, we might say to that, well, non-Christians do make and obey laws, and some of those laws are very similar to God's moral laws summarized in the Ten Commandments. But the world will only get on board with some of God's laws in so much as they feel it was their own idea or so far as they perceive them as practical in their own eyes. They don't obey because God said so or out of respect for his authority or trust that even if I don't understand some of these laws, God is good and so his commands must be good. And they definitely don't obey because God has not only created them from nothing, but also made a way of redemption in Christ for them so that they feel giving him all of their love and obedience is still not enough to say thank you. And without this proper attitude, even partial obedience can be lawlessness. The natural man seeks to make his own laws and purposes and to best obtain this autonomy. Even the lawless know some kind of general equity of mankind is beneficial. It's tough to make a comfortable life in complete anarchy, so most people would concede that laws against murder or theft are acceptable. But lawfulness to the, God, to the glory of God is not the world's goal. They don't know or care about what you know and care about. Verse 5, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. God's laws concerning going to church on Sunday bring these distinctions into clear focus. The Sabbath and the New Covenant Lord's Day and all God's accompanying commands about how to spend your Sunday, not forsaking the gathering of the saints, are, all, are not laws that compute as sensical in the eyes of the lawless. A day of rest may sound reasonable, but church isn't the world's, uh, first, uh, world's idea of rest. Saturday nights binging Netflix or She-Hulk and lazy Sundays waking up in the afternoon for a matinee or for a brunch and mimosas, they make more sense. And contrast is clear in you who aren't just concerned with a comfortable society where you can live your life with relatives with relative happiness and pleasures 
and enough freedom and autonomy from God that I don't have to feel too bad about my sin unless it's practically affecting my personal goals or routine or self-esteem. You aren't satisfied with just that kind of rest. You love to behold this God in whom there is no sin. And though it's often painful, you long to have him not just take away your sins judicially, but to actually learn his commands and grow in them and be purified. And so it's no surprise that because the world doesn't share that motive of having their sins take away, taken away, church isn't restful to them as it is to you. They haven't seen him or known him, verse 6, and so they keep on sinning without feeling a sufficient need to be purified. You have seen and known him, and so you find within yourself the need to respond to God's call to worship, and you see the value of structuring your week around a fresh reminder that Christ is raised and all the work necessary to clothe you in righteousness is finished And you are happy to obey, because even though weekend cartoons and Captain Crunch are fun, that's not the tree that you want to be eating from on Sunday morning. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known him. John now reaches back to last week and his point about abiding or preserving your good confession, which was essentially genuine faith in Christ alone for your sins. And he completely shatters any idea that there is such a thing as new creation light and a Christian born from above, which produces genuine, a genuine confession of faith, but which simultaneously has no effect whatsoever on shifting the, char- the, the, the characteristic center of our actions in this life from the practice of sin to the practice of righteousness. And this is really the crux of this whole text tonight. It's the truth that over the next few verses, John will simply rotate around and show us from several angles to establish it as an incontrovertible fact. In verse 7, then, regarding this point and expounding on it through verse 10, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Now, I'm not going to read the whole next four verses again, as we already read it, but in summary, what he essentially says is this. God is righteous, and so those who are born of God will practice righteousness. They cannot do otherwise because his seed, his communicable nature, his spirit, his new creation work is in them. But those who practice sinning, well, they are of the one who was the sinner from the beginning, that is, the devil. And he and his works are the very things that God's seed and his incommunicable and his communicable nature and his spirit and his new creation will destroy. So just as light casts out darkness, these two practices of righteousness or sin cannot exist or coexist like yin and yang. The light is hostile to the darkness and will prevail in you. The kind of love the Father has bestowed on his people in Christ cannot produce a mere hollow confession in his children. And if you see a completely hollow confession without the accompanying practice of righteousness, do not be be deceived. That ain't it, kids. Now, with that, we may still ask, John, how is this a comfort? I I don't know that I can say I practice righteousness because I'm not sure what that means. Is there some kind of degree to which I must practice righteousness 
to feel like I've crossed the line and I feel uh, uh, confidence? And here's the answer that can deflate that tension. Simply put, no. God knows that we are in all kinds of different places in our lives. And only you and maybe those closest to you and maybe your elders know where you've come from and how you've been trying to repent and to what degree of success God has granted you. But be encouraged. It's, it is merely practicing at it that will bolster your confidence. When, whether you only occasionally grace a gym with your presence or uh, during the first couple of weeks of January for a New Year's resolution, or if you're a full-on gym rat, you've seen at the gym that there are people of all different shapes and sizes and different levels of health, and they all have different workout plans that, that fit their body type or their health or their age. And sometimes you'll see people working out who are likely easing in, uh, into their physical therapy after an injury. And people who are usually the most self-conscious at the gym are the people that don't frequent it too often. When you've been there for any amount of time and you've seen some progress in yourself, you may start to look more burly and possibly even intimidating, but those people who have been going to the gym for a while are actually the least judgmental. They know that progress often looks like two steps for, one step forward and two steps back. They know that just when you've resolved to work out six days a week and eat healthy, you may pull a muscle or get COVID or have some other distraction in life that sets you back, and only you know that stuff. Well, practicing righteousness is a lot like that. If you're skinny and new and looking around at all the machines with no idea about what to work on first, well, try something and pace yourself, and then go back home and rest and recuperate. Eat well and try again. Learn, adjust, adapt. Mix it up with new things. And if you stick with it, a funny thing happens. You start getting into eating food for the health and not just for the taste, and you start learning more and more about sleep and motivation and all these interrelated subjects. And that's how it is in growing in righteousness. You hear of Christ and trust in him to take away your sins, and then John says, okay, let's get to work practicing righteousness. And let's see if we can't make some sweet gains. And you look around and you see all these commandments and you're like, well, I, I don't know where to start. Well, get in there and try working on mercy instead of anger. Or try that one over there. That's a good one. Try being charitable in conversations rather than bearing false witness and assuming the worst in others. And so you lift some weights and you rest on the Lord's Day and you get some more ideas about how about growing in Christ. But always be re by being reminded that you are already righteous in Christ. And this is about practice, not perfection, and so on and so on. Finally, in the last half of the last verse of our passage this evening, we get a little preview of John's next passage. In short, he lets us in on a little secret. The name of the gym that you're working out in is called Brotherly Love. So, children of God, take heart as you work out your faith in this life. The same God who shines his new creation light in you so that you're able to confess the faith is the same God who will patiently guide you through the gym of brotherly love and practicing righteousness. And don't be too hard on yourselves. Even if you're a hot mess who has no experience in the gym, you don't have anything to prove. 
whether you're reaching for the heavy weights or the lighter weights while you're practicing righteousness, God knows that we're all in different places and struggling with various trials that that hold us back from the progress that we would love to see in ourselves. One day in heaven, we will all be spiritually buff like Jesus. But until then, it's enough to know that he is the perfect gym bro and knows exactly what he's doing. And it's enough to just practice what he says to practice and be content with your humble progress. Amen. Let's pray.